Good afternoon. Good evening. And good night. And welcome to Myth Take. A fresh take on ancient myth. Episode 28. And we're back at it again. Yes. And tonight's topic is Antigone. Antigone. By Sophocles. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> That's right. It's supposed to say at the same time. It kind of adds oh. punch to it. Oh, okay. No? Well, yeah. next time. Yeah. I'm thinking like a chorus. Yeah. So. Why are we doing this episode? We're doing this episode because... Um, we went to see a performance of oh, yes. Antigone, yes. and we went to a discussion about Antigone. And we'd like to share I, it with you. And I finally read the play, Antigone. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, well, that's, that's required reading for someone with a classicist background. Yes, they might take my degree away, but ah. I will confess that I did not read Antigone until about a week before we went to the performance. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in seeing how they adopted the performance mm -hmm. to fit in with the current political and cultural climate of the ah, day. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. How, how was your, and, and, and let me just say, so you read it for the first time before seeing the performance. Yes. Okay. So how, how was your initial reaction to the reading prior to the performance? What did you feel about it after you put it down? Sophocles um, Antigone. Oh, that's a really that good time. question. Um, so it's kind of hard, like, you know what I mean? Like, I like the, I like that you did that because it gets me thinking about interrogating it from that point of view. I've read it more times than I care to care to discuss. So uh, it's different. So I found it kind of a little bit of a letdown. Like I yeah. knew what the general story was, so I kind of knew what he was going to cover. The reading. But yeah, when yeah. I read it, yes. Yeah. Definitely not the performance. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody who listens to this show for any length of time knows how much I love Medea, mm -hmm. the play Medea. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I was hoping for something that kind of resonated with me a little, a little bit more. As a woman? Um, as a classicist? Yeah, like as more a with human? a feminist. Uh-huh. Um, because she was being talked about in the lead up to, to this, this performance, like uh, conversations about uh, oh, Antigone see. and connecting Antigone with ideas of the Me Too movement. Oh, and so... I was a little puzzled mm -hmm. by when I finished the play of how they were going to tease that out, which mm -hmm. I think they did very well, but in a slightly different direction. Because I was thinking of Me Too, of Me Too movement in terms of uh, sexual assault, and there isn't any sex in this play. Nope. Um, which makes it a little bit unusual <laughs> in a way for a Greek play. Um because most, There's still well, lots I shouldn't of say death. most plays, but there is lots of death. Yeah. There is definitely lots of and death tragedy. about it. And fear and pity. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there are some very good themes in it. And there's not a lot of action. Like, there's not a lot of doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, as with every Greek play, the really good bits happen off stage. Ah. Right? Mm. Um, all the killings and murders and things all happen off stage. Mm. Um, I was really blown away with the performance we saw. So then you saw the performance and then mm. that altered your reading of the play. Um, I suppose so. I mean, not, not, I don't, altered feels like too strong a word. Okay. But it brought out, I saw how they had adapted it. And the adaptation we saw was by Mike Griffin. Mm -hmm. And um, he uh, 
worked with a classicist, Adam Rappold, and his students in, in, and the drama students um, to develop this particular adaptation to resonate with the modern themes. Mm-hmm. And as Mike said in his director notes, yeah. um, that he felt whenever he was seeing the news, he was seeing a lot of Antigones in the news and as uh, and seeing those as women who are standing up to power and tr- and uh, trying to speak. Yeah. Speak truth to power. That phrase gets a little overused, but that's the kind of general idea I think that, that he was conveying. Um, so, so I definitely saw Antigone as a stronger character after seeing the performance. Sure. Um, and you and I have talked about this numerous times, mm-hmm. how the names of these Greek plays are sometimes misleading. And Antigone is one that I felt like yeah. it's kind of not about Antigone. Yeah, um, and when I was reading it, and even when I was seeing it, um, I was really... Oh, I'm going to have to mention politics. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really seeing Creon as some of as one of our world leaders these days. Mm-hmm. Um and that was the modern connection that I picked out when I read it, more so than the Antigone angle. Yeah. Um, but but even in the performance, I kind of felt that um, it, that as well, where you have um, a man in charge who is um, trying to get people to do what he says because he says it. Um, although I although I think the performance we saw was maybe a little bit more sympathetic towards Creon than I was after reading it. I think they were, and that came out in some of the discussions yeah. after, after the play as well. Sure. Um, because I didn't initially see him as a sympathetic character at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's hard. Uh, and, and that was my, that was my, my take on it as well. I have been for some time, forcing myself to reframe my expectations for the Antigone because the original, original, the the traditional kind of manifestation of Antigone has always been much along the same lines of what you were talking about. The idea that she is, uh, she is the singular protagonist, the titular hero in the narrative, uh, a champion of uh, you know righteousness and so on, uh, in the face of uh, you know male power and privilege, and victimization and stuff like that, right? And the play has been weaponized, like used uh, in the dramatic tradition in a number of moments throughout history that are particularly poignant for these types of themes about power and struggles. Um, I think there was a late 70s or early 80s performance um, that framed it in terms of Nazis and fascism. Yes, it's been Uh, used in the the 60s to frame the Vietnam War conflict. Antigone was seen as um, anti-war and pro-peace. And um, and it's been used in the the outbreak of World War II to talk about, uh, you know, the struggle between fascism and, and so on, right? So it's always a good set piece to kind of drag out. You know, it sounds like I'm not considering It's a very it, adaptable, yeah. it's a very adaptable piece. Yeah, to, to use, yeah. right, uh, to adapt, right? There's the word you just said, yeah. right? To adapt, to suit the needs of the audience. And I'm not, I'm not resistant to that notion because as a mythologist, like that's the whole basis of myth itself, right? Is to serve the, the needs of the collective. The collective changes. We're not the same 
all the time, right? So this this narrative comes along and it's a really valuable tool, right? It has timeless qualities in it and timeless themes as well, but it, it will not die. So you are somebody who has taught Green Technique yeah, many, time. many times, yeah, probably more time. times than you care to remember. Sure. Um, so what were your thoughts and expectations when we oh. headed in to see this play? Well, I was excited to see it. I always like to go see Greek tragedy because I have seen a few where they do it extremely poorly. And, and whenever it's been pulled off, I, 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 I rant and rave about it. Um, and so my, what were my expectations going into it? I was open. You know, I keep an open mind. And, yeah, and I was like, okay, let's go and have some fun and see what's going on here. Knowing about how it's been used in the past, and I was a little trepidatious about some of the themes that you, know, you kind of had your curiosity peak to prime the pump in a certain way to connect it with certain issues in today's sort of feminist sphere. I'm, I didn't even really think about any of that, to be honest. And I just sort of went in and said, okay, let's let's just see what, what we get. Yeah. yeah. That's how I approached it. Yeah. So in the interest of full disclosure, I guess, this yeah. um, was a performance at the University of Weeple. Of course. Yeah. And um, I was, was tangentially involved in promoting the play okay. as well, which also well, helped my enthusiasm right. because I was um, looking up things about about Antigone right. as a play. Um, and we saw it, it was, <clears throat> so it's a student performance. It was two weekends. We saw it the very first, we saw it opening night, opening actually. Opening night, yeah. Um, and just... Or I think it was just that week. It was either just before or just after the uh, opening weekend. Yeah. Um, the university hosted a talk by the founder of the Me Too movement. So oh. completely, completely separate events, completely different events, oh. but really interesting. Oh, that, really I didn't, interesting I didn't know timing. That. It kind of dropped um, off my radar. Yeah. Okay. I tried to get tickets and oh, they sold okay. out really fast. I got you. Um, so it was and all then, a perfect and then, storm situation. Yeah, yeah, and then there, and then of course there was also the roundtable that yes. we that we attended. We had already seen the play, and yeah. uh, we attended the roundtable. And I love those sorts of things, like just like generally as a practice, because it gives people who are uncomfortable with maybe what they saw the opportunity to hear other people's points of view about it, who have some pretty divergent you know backgrounds and opinions about it. And that's always a good thing. You know, it, it, it fights against people's sort of restriction of ideas. And any opportunity to kind of interrogate the source a little bit is, I think, a healthy thing. It adds to the discussion, even if you're really not. You're just listening, like our podcast, for example. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I, I think they did a fantastic job with the play. Um, the theater was set up in such a way that I think the first, like, three or four rows, maybe yeah, even, five, really maybe even five rows, yeah. were right on yeah, the like, stage level, like on the floor level where yeah. the people were performing. The Touch set the, the set was fantastic. And it, and it, it followed um, that that Greek idea of being set outside in front of a building. That's right. And the building was very adaptable um, yeah. because it served a number of different performances. Yeah. Um, there were some lovely special effects, uh, particularly when Antigone was performing the uh, funeral, the burial rites yes. for her brother. Um, they actually, um, so she was... Good lighting and... It was almost like she was dancing. I mean, she yeah. was sitting in front of the body, but it was, but, but her motions were like dancing as she, as she moved her hands over, over the body to, right. to give us the idea of, yeah, of performing 
A burial, yeah, yeah. very ritual. And um, there was also uh, a column of uh, there was also yeah. sand that dropped from the ceiling in a spotlight. Yeah, that was, was good. very effective. Yeah, um, good lighting, good sound, nothing yeah. really bombastic or over the top. I thought it was a combustible performance, like in the sense that everything was just on the edge when 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 it needed to be, it popped. Yes, right, and then when it needed to be sedate, it was sedate. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, the, it 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 rose to the occasion but also had a, a kind of moments of of quiet right which i thought was good and they had some of at uh, times actors um entering through the audience like up the aisle yes um so theater and around almost yeah, like. yeah, yeah yeah and um i thought that was that was really yeah that's always well. fun i did like our seats that we were back i like to i like to be back a bit and up a tad just looking down on it a little bit more mm -hmm. you know because that would be more than likely, the way that people in classical Athens would, would take it in 441 BC, right? So one of um, the relationships that I was really interested to see, and it didn't pop so much for me when I was reading it, mm -hmm. um, but definitely in seeing it, was the relationship between Antigone and Ismene. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that really resonated with me and of course like I was primed to already think about this in terms yeah. of how this was how they were connecting it so I went in knowing that they were connecting it with yeah. modern themes and modern events and yeah, that so kind of thing see what they did. so yeah. I was already primed Got to thinking it. that way yeah and um and I also had the occasion to bring this up at the roundtable discussion uh -huh. um, to hear what uh, what the academics and experts um, thought of my particular um, interpretation yeah. um, of this. But I saw the relationship between the two of them as... Between Antigone and, and Ismene. Ismene. The two, the two sisters. sisters. So, they, right? so they, they are our sisters. And as you pointed out to me, it's a little unusual as well that it's kind of the way it the relationship is the way it is because Ismene is the, the older, older sister. One. Yeah. Um, so in the play, Antigone says that she tells Ismene she's going to go off and she's going to um, defy Creon's law mm -hmm. and I am the law. Yeah. And bury her brother. Mm -hmm. um, and Ismene um, tries to dissuade her and then says, "Okay, well, like I'll pretend I don't know anything." Uh, and then Antigone goes off and does it. She tries to convince her too, though. Remember, like right there, she's like, "You, you want to? You sure you want to do that? Like, I'm for following the rules." Like paraphrasing, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. she tries to kind of yeah. question what Antigone's yeah. really up to, like her conviction. Um, and then uh, when Antigone is caught by Creon and, and Creon's men, and mm -hmm. they bring him to uh, bring her to Creon. Mm -hmm. Um, she does not try to hide what she did. No. She speaks very openly and she said, like, yes, I did it. I defied her law. And, yes. uh, of course, this puts Creon in a difficult position where his, because yes. she's his niece. Oh, yes, right? she is his niece. Yeah. He is the uncle. uncle. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's Jocasta's and, brother. And he has, he has made this decree and it's a very public decree and he doesn't want to back down. He doesn't want to be seen as, as weak by, by, um, the people, perhaps, sure. Depending on how, you, <laughs> depending on how you interpret it, exactly, yeah, and depending okay. on how you interpret it, yeah, yeah. Um, and so now he has to declare or pass punishment. And initially, yeah. he, um, I, I think, he wants to pass punishment on both of them, but then he's persuaded that just Antigone. But it was really interesting because, as Antigone, in those first moments when Antigone is is confessing to this, Ismene comes in and she's like. 
Me too. Like in in the sense, of, <laughs> in the sense that she's like. Good word choice. Yeah, I just realized that as I said yeah. it. Um, in the sense that she wants to share in Antigone's punishment. Yeah. In her punishment? You think she has that in her mind when she says it? Well, no. no. Okay. And you know exactly where <laughs> okay. I'm going with right, this. We already it. talked about this. Okay. okay. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. Now I remember. Go yeah. Ahead. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So it's only been a week or two. Yeah, that's good. So Antigone um, has been sentenced to her punishment and Ismene comes in and says, wait, I was involved too. I knew all about it. You need to kill me too. Voluntary martyrdom. <laughs> yeah. Which is a really interesting response. Like there's no self-preservation. And I read that mm-hmm. or saw that, um, your, interpreted that yep, gotcha. as here is the um, younger sister who has um, been successful in defying the king in challenging the king and yes Antigone has been successful in 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 challenging Creon and now um, Ismene wants to come in and share the glory so to speak right yeah yeah you were sitting beside me when I brought this up at the at the discussion right um and Okay, what? Yeah, what? no, you're okay. right. No, no, yeah. no, you're, you're no, right. no, you, you got it. I <laughs> Our know. listeners can't see, but he's yeah. like itching to say something. <laughs> uh, well, I, if I remember correctly, the way that you stated it was, I think, in, in the way you just described it, I, I agree. It just said, you know, it, that's why I said to what she really wants to get on board with is not so much the fact that she's like volunteer, volunteering for her own death, right? She wants to be associated, of course, with the resistance and with the glory of defying a king, in this case her uncle, who she thinks, maybe rightly in her mind at that moment, and maybe even Antigone too, will acquiesce and not kill them because of what his role in the in their family is, right? He's a, they call it a curios. It's like he's like the father figure of the house, head of the household, because Oedipus is dead. He's he's responsible for the unmarried women in the household. That's it's Mene and Antigone, really, right? And even well, his son is they're only betrothed. They're not married, right? So he's really responsible for her as a father figure, right? So and and then, but it's it's terrible. She doesn't calculate. You know but, what I mean? Like, okay. So push it into the modern context. That's what. Okay. I got you. Okay. So mm-hmm. so. How does that there's, work? There's the context. Yeah. Little sister rush, or older sister rushes in and says, "Wait, it was me too, and yeah. we did this together, yeah. and yeah. and this kind of thing." Yeah. And what it made me think of instantly is some of the conversations <laughs> that I have been seeing on Twitter and in various social, social, media. social media communities yeah. mm-hmm. about the um, tension, so, so some of the issues and problems that arise um, when women mm-hmm. are seen as a monolith mm-hmm. fighting um, fighting for a cause. Because mm-hmm. what and and apparently this also happened, or some people are saying that this happened with the Me Too movement as well, where these movements are often started by black women, mm-hmm. minority women, mm-hmm. who fight and fight and fight, and then a white woman comes in, mm-hmm. or an organization of white women come in, and then they kind of take it on and they erase. Um, those voices and that history of that movement and wind up centering 
white feminism mm-hmm. um, and what and and white women mm-hmm. rather than honoring the people who have been laying the groundwork for that. Right. And so that's that is so you what you, I saw as you in equated that, those two sisters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and I was thinking about it more lately. So who's the pioneer? Antigone? And Antigone, yeah, the and then Ismene the is the one who comes in and disqualifies at the, the last personal minute. valor and risk. Yeah, yeah, at the last minute and wants yeah. wants it to be about I'm, her to an extent, sure, possibly, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's two things out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought up the question about the sisters' relationship during the roundtable discussion mm-hmm. because it is a little bit weird, and I'm not sure how how. Other people read it, right? Like, yeah. Maybe I'm like completely off. Well, well no, you're close they, to it. I, I didn't <laughs> think of that. You know, I'm, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so there, there was some discussion about, um, like, there, there is an argument that the sisters, it's actually kind of some inside sister bonding exchange. Yeah, it's sorority. Not really, yeah, yeah, about sorority, and it's yeah. not really um, c- controversial. Yeah. Um, or not really a conflict, rather, but. Um, I see it. I saw it as as a conflict and a tension between the two sisters, and that's how I read it. Yeah. So the other thing that came out of that, which is coming- fascinating to me, <laughs> Be- and, and I only add one point of counter okay. uh, counter information. Yeah. And I, I think it. I hope it's not a false attribution, but I believe that Sophocles is responsible for saying that the natural ally of a woman is another woman. So that sorority argument does carry some water with me. But it, what it might spotlight is the kind of naivete of the of the of the of the of Ismene, for example, yeah, and maybe even Antigone, you know. Well, you know, and like, and there's knows, also right? there's also the idea that maybe Ismene sees like her only living immediate family member at this point is yeah. about to be killed, and maybe Ismene does not want to be left alone in the world, and would rather yeah. be killed with Antigone. Why not? Um, and so. So there's there's that reading as well. Yeah. But martyrs are. But coming back to the performance. Yes. yes. So thinking about that in the performance, I, I thought maybe the only thing that I would have changed about that performance and the actress who did Antigone was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But but I thought, what would happen if they had cast a woman of color as as Antigone? Oh. Because for me, and in the way that I was thinking about it in terms of what's happening culturally and societally in the world right now, yes. I was thinking that would be, in some ways, an even more powerful story. Oh, it's great that you mentioned that, because I've been obsessing lately about Shakespeare's Measure for Measure and comparing Measure for Measure to Antigone. And what BBC has done, it's long tradition, of course, hundreds and hundreds of actors have played the role. Um, they cast, um, it's Antonia, I believe, God, um, a, a, a black woman in that role. Everyone else is white, right? And it, it's the latest version of it. And, and it works. Like, so that would be a good adaptation because it, it just focuses the issue. It just sharpens yeah. it a little bit. Yeah. Better. Yeah. If that's if, if that's, that's the if, thing you if want that's to do. the reading that yeah. you want to go for sure. with with that. And when you when you were describing the sort of Me Too movement and the social media context of these what you described as, you know, black women who are responsible for the initial resistance and then white women, but you you, you made it in, in in some regards a, a racial issue. And what the way I saw it was more of a more of an issue between between women and, and the and the difference in pioneers and followers on mm-hmm. right and and bag bag uh, bandwagon jumpers and you know those those people who are responsible for the 
standing up in the first first case, right? Yeah. And there's always a tension between those two groups because they don't really know. You want to support, but then you don't want it to seen as a like a follower, right? Yeah, and and, and that is part of part of the whole conversation yeah. about being allies, right? Um, Dragged that, along, you know, like how, how how do you be an ally to whatever what whatever group, yeah, whatever oppressed group you are trying to be an ally to? How yeah. you do that without hijacking the message without sure. taking over and making it about you and look at yeah. um look at look at me i sure. deserve a cookie because i'm such a great ally exactly and that carries a lot of water when you consider antigone's response because what does she say to his many uh well not directly but just <laughs> generally she says no yeah she says forget it right and you're like what wow right yeah she says yeah, yeah. she is like no forget it you yeah. you didn't want to be a part of this when yeah. i asked you to be a part of this exactly. so you don't get to be a part of this and, now and, the, and that is an ed- those lines are adapted to to emphasize that unnatural um position because the natural position is one of sorority is one of friendship they're kin right uh, but no sophocles changes it mark griffin adapts it mike mike i mean that's okay. adapts it mm-hmm. to to um punctuate that that position mm-hmm. right this is a singular thing and and this is one of one of the points of evidence where people begin to throw some shade on a character like antigone because she had an opportunity there right which could have changed because it's a lot more difficult for someone like Creon to kill two than it is for them to kill one, right? In resistance, right? Just philosophically speaking. And it's her stubbornness, right? So people are like, well, you know, what did she expect was going to happen, right? Yeah. And, and, and like you, you, you kind of you look at it and say, well, he, he does, he, when I he, Creon does actually change his mind, but it's too late. She's the inflexible one. She's the one who, they're both problems. Yeah, right? they're yeah both, of course. They're both, what would it, uh, irresistible object needs. Uh, immovable. You know, immovable object. object needs irresistible force. Yes. Leads to annihilation. Yeah. Right? They both cancel each other out. But Creon survives the annihilation because he does change. Right? He does adapt too late. But he does adapt. Right? Yeah. Uh, Antigone doesn't. She's the one who does not bend. She's the one that does not yield. She's the one that breaks. Right? Yeah, and so there's so the play brings out the whole question, um, and we were when like, who's the hero? The one well, exactly. Kind of yeah. yeah. Well, like, who's is, the hero this is is it Antigone that heroic mm-hmm. for not bending, for not adapting? Yeah. And when we were working on our project yeah. for our listeners. I'm going to have to tell them, tell our listeners what, what our little project oh, was sure. that we created for them. Sure. Um, they, um, I, <clears throat> no, we'll tell them at the end. You got to wait till the end. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with this. So yeah, that's fine. Okay. Um, but when we were talking about it and I was kind of summing up, um, Antigone oh, like the as, moments. Saying, as, as, in, yeah. yeah, as Antigone saying, um, no, I must do what is right. And, right. You said, "Well, it's right for, for her." her. <laughs> yeah, at that right? moment. So, yeah. So it kind of brings up these the the complexity. Like she's doing what, like the the burial rites are a really big deal. Are a big deal, yeah. Um, which is kind of which for me was something that made the play a little less accessible when I read it mm-hmm. as a modern person because we take funerals and we take those kinds of our our ideas are very diverse sure. of what 
and very flexible in, like in, what, in, in what we do with somebody's with the body when they die. Oh, right? sure. Yeah, There's all yeah. kinds of things. And we're really, yeah. you know, so so we're maybe yeah. like for Victorian, maybe it would have been like even 100 years ago, it would have mm-hmm. been more shocking or something. So right. th- that was kind of one point. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, I get you. Yeah, you're saying we're kind of like laissez-faire about it. No yeah, like, okay. It doesn't really carry like, a lot of water. Like, why, yeah. why... Like, big deal. Leave them to rot. Well, okay, you know? I wouldn't be yeah. quite that harsh, but... Well, I, I'm yeah. trying to, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, um, and I completely forget now where I was going with that point. <laughs> no, the differences in time between burial yes, practices. Yes, but I was going to be taking it somewhere. And you, well, and you're I saying, as a, oh, I think you're about to say, as a modern <laughs> reader... You, when you read it, you were like, yeah, yeah, okay. She's really oh, right. making a so big it deal about exactly. it. Exactly. Like, it didn't, like, I'm, it, it seemed like she almost maybe made too big a deal about it. Sure. In a way. Yeah. Because she did go and perform the rites on him. Yep. And then the body was found, and then she goes back and she does, does it again. again. That's and the it, moment. That for me. was the, I'm just yeah. like, okay, like, You've dispatched your obligations yeah. to the gods. If that's your if that's your argument, which yeah. it seemed to be, if yeah. that's your argument about why you have to do this, uh-huh. then why you've already do it done again? it. So why are you doing it again? Throw some more shade, right? Why is she doing it again, right? If you want to throw some more shade on Antigone, why do you think she might be doing it again? Neil Creon. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's personal. personal. It's personal. It's about fame. It's about glory, yeah. right? So. Yeah, it is a contest, right? Yeah, it's and it's a battle of will. It is, and 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 they're coming from they're coming from different spheres, right? Uh, but they're so much alike. Yeah. Right. They're just they're they're and and for a lot of the things that we we would, I'll just say something like, for many of the things that we would find fault in the in the motivations of Creon, which people have been doing for decades, right? They say things like, "Oh, evil king, tyrant." Right, right. Doesn't listen to the people. Doesn't care about his family. Is responsible for, you know, just, you know, just make him into a villain, basically, mm-hmm. right? And and then when Antigone comes along and does what she does, just by the course of human nature, we're like, oh, beautiful, right? Moral, righteous, right? It's not that easy. Greek tragedy is never that simple, yeah. is it? Right? It's not. Good. It can't be solved by such a simple equation. So that's why I loved it. And th- that dichotomy was brought out by this performance for me. I liked uh, how they had Haman and Cre- Creon. He was a great figure. He's great. Yeah. Which both or both of them? Yeah. Um, well, they both were great. Yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking. I was sort of rethinking about Haimon, Haimon, the son of Creon. Yeah. Right? And Eurydice, the queen. Right? Now, that exchange. Your, what, oh, right. Yeah, okay. So ahead. that so that exchange with Haman yeah. and Creon, where Haman convinces Creon. Yeah. I thought it was Or yeah, tries. Yeah. Well, he does though. He does. It's just too late. Yeah, yeah. Um and he gets a couple of kicks out of you, right? He, yeah. he it it starts off combative, but Creon comes around to it, and and we see a Creon that is not as inflexible. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we want to give him a sympathetic reading, yeah, maybe he is afraid, and that is why he seems in, inflexible. That he is afraid of not being a good enough leader, and he talks early on. Mm-hmm. about how he's had this kind of thrust upon him and yep. he's the leader of the people and he doesn't want reluctant leader, reluctant mm-hmm. hero, right? Yeah. 
Um, and so, so maybe his inflexibility rather, um, rather than just being sheer stubbornness, maybe there's fear behind it. And sure. he doesn't want to be seen as, as a bad leader for changing his mind. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, I like it. I, you know, when I see Creon in the, with, thinking about it in those terms, as far as motivation is concerned, right? Like you said, he makes the best decision that he can. Sophocles deals with ideas about fate and destiny and, and you know, um, you know, free will versus determinism. What what can a man know? What does a man know? How does that inform his his decisions, right? And here's a society, Thebes itself, on the brink of annihilation in a fratricidal conflict, right, who valorizes one brother, gives him a hero's, right, gives him a, a hero's funeral, the best possible transition for a, a man into the, into the afterlife. So it's not like Creon is ignorant of these rules, right, those that, you know, the Oikos, for example, right, but, and then, but, it, but simultaneously, what does he do? Then he denies the burial rights for the other brother. Right? So the trauma of facing annihilation and the reality of ancient warfare would be that if that war was lost, then what would happen to everybody in Thebes? Right? Yeah. Every, every man, woman, and child yeah, would, be would be put destroyed. to the sword. Right? So that's, that's a big bump. Here's the interesting modern connection with yeah. that, though, too. It's like we, there's a lot of words that are getting thrown around now yeah. in in public discourse, ideas about patriotism and idea, ideas yeah. about loyalty. Yeah. And that He's gets, the state. that gets at those problems because who is yeah. the loyal person? Who is the patriot? Yeah. And and He's, one person's patriot is another person's traitor. True. And, yeah. and I think that there's something in yeah. there. He he makes errors. Yeah. Right? He he the Hamarsha, right? He misses the mark. He moves into the hubristic sphere when he begins to take on the manifestation of the state as a singular person. I am the law is what I said, yes. right? I yeah. am the state, right? Yeah. I am the law it comes from the Judge Dredd movie, but it's the same thing, <laughs> right? It's the same arrogant presumption that this notion can be encapsulated in one man's desire, right? Yeah. And, and, and maintained without perversion, right? And we see it. Right, and we don't need to draw any modern parallels. Exactly, there for our audience. <laughs> oh, I know, but it's so poignant. The whole that, hey, that's one of the reasons why Greek tragedy is so awesome, right? It, it's still relevant. Yeah, still, like you could go a hundred ways, yeah. right, with this, right? But he tries to do all those things, right? And his his drive and his ambition and his care for the state are are something that uh, is to be commendable, but it just goes wrong. Right. Yeah. And and by the by by the time it gets to the point where he can recognize a course correction, it's too late because we don't have the foresight of the gods. We don't have right their their ability to see into the future or whatever, you know? And in his course correction we yeah. get what I think of as a Romeo and Juliet moment. Yeah. Um so he has um Oh, entombed, entombed Antigone with a with a token amount of food. Yeah. Um. So that technically, that. technically, he hasn't killed her. Right. right. So he's trying to get around the gods' laws about murder yeah. and murder of kin. And murder of kin. Yeah, yeah. Um. Because he's not technically killing her. No, I'm just going to run out of food. Yeah. Um, I am not responsible for the murder of this baby that I'm about to expose. Exactly. Because a kindly shepherd might find him in the Oedipus myth, right? Yes. Yeah. Or he might be rescued by a god. So she hangs herself. Yeah. Haman hangs himself. Yeah. 
or or in this play he he uh, stabs himself and the the hanging scene was beautifully ex oh my goodness i just walked right into that executed dun, 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 dun. <laughs> oh i'm Cue the sorry. dramatic music i'm sorry dear it was listeners. it was well done it like, was it was very well done yeah. um and they chose to represent it by having um she had been wearing a red dress or uh-huh. not a dress a red uh, pantsuit actually yeah pantsuit type thing yeah. and she was represented by just this red scarf like, scarf. Kerchief. Yeah, like kerchief. this really long red red veil yeah. which then also gets um has further use in the production as blood as as people's blood as like as more people die and they get wrapped right, around yeah. this uh, wrapped with this with with this scarf yeah um yeah so Haman kills himself and then of course Eurydice totally. kills herself when she hears about when it. she hears about the loss of her son yeah and um Total and then Creon has, he's lost everybody at this point. Yeah, see, the, the, the offender is left to survive. The family suffers the consequences. Mm-hmm. Typical, right? That, that, that's, and then, but is being left to survive a worse punishment? Yeah. Right? Because then he's well, got to live with it. Exactly. That's, the, that's what I think is yeah. what the tragedy of it is, right? He, he knows what, he, what, what he's done and what, it, what he's led to. Antigone gets the, the release of death. Right, and she, she goes actually, to Hades. Yeah, yeah, she actually goes to Hades, and then is properly buried. Right, she's properly yeah. integrated into into that realm, which she is the defender and, of. She's like a living Persephone. Yes, you know. Yes, so she, she brings him. She brings up Hades a lot. Right. in her in her conversations with yeah. Creon. So she's in in some kind of coded way, you know, uh, a living representative of the concept of death, right, and the the issues of surrounding death. And Polynices gets his burial. Um, yep. I'm not sure. I can't remember. He's still- yeah, yeah. They did bring this out in the play um, a bit as well. Um, but certainly, when you read it, he on their way to get Antigone, he stops and Creon stops and buries and buries. Oh yeah, he's properly Pol- buried. Polynesian. So yeah. everybody gets a proper burial. Everybody gets a proper burial. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. Creon's left to. He's left with nothing. With yeah. Nothing. Yeah. He's he's left with the destruction of his family. Right, and it jeopardizes his whole role as you know the shepherd of his flock, basically in Thebes, because he's he's activated a form of resistance that a lot of people don't really talk about, because this this idea of Antigone being the resistor is perfectly valid, but what it also does is it changes the whole characteristic of the chorus, which I found compelling in this performance right because the chorus is, is initially very much with creon they are right they because they're they're the ones that were to feel they were the ones that would have suffered the greatest had this annihilation that i was speaking about occurred they would have been killed right they are the people of thebes right the dime the democracy right these are and then we find it this singular figure now trying to you know act as a king right so there's going to be natural tension, especially when he begins to make these proclamations. He activates sort of a shadow democracy that's operating just underneath him. That's sort of vacillating between Antigone's position and Creon's position. They themselves don't really know what to do. They hear both sides of it, but again, she's just a girl. Like I don't mean to like demean it, but you know what I mean. That's kind of the way they would look at she's, it. Yeah, she's she's easy to ignore until yeah. she isn't. Right, and then and then it's too late, right? Yeah. Because that role has forced her down a, a terrible path, right? So, yeah, you know, and, and the chorus were great. Like, you know, you see these really bad performances. Like, you know, sometimes you watch them on YouTube and stuff. 
uh, of choruses. They just sort of stand around and just like shout lines. Oh, this chorus was fantastic. Yeah, they, these they guys were, were. They were right in it. Yeah. They were so so dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they had elements of dance that I thought they did this sort of collective breathing, which for me made a pulse and a rhythm to it. It gave a vitality to a choral performance. And did you notice they formed the throne that Creon sat on when yes. he first became king yeah, with their great. bodies, yeah. which was really symbolic. And of their support. Of literally. Literally. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Then they move away. You notice, too, how there's there are other modern adaptations that I, that I think were emphasized by this. Uh, yeah, and one was the um, the the role of the 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 course or the arc of the chorus themselves throughout the story, as I was sort of saying, as they move between uh, the two kind of characters, and the other one was the the role of the the integration of the messenger or the guard into the role of the chorus and the dialogue that they had, the dialogue that Creon had with the messenger. And what the messenger was saying, you know, like, oh, I was elected to come here, and I'm going to tell you what I saw. Oh, and I, and did, I really didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, and you know, was, but uh, this, is, I drew the short straw, and this is what it is. And Creon loses it. He's like, he can't believe what this guy's reporting. He can't believe what um, that anyone or anything or he doesn't even that would defy, would dare defy him. And he accuses it's him of fake being, news. Yeah, it's fake news. He he accuses of being bribed or corrupted. Right? He's like, who paid you to say this? How much money are you taking to do this? What is your agenda here, right? He is a suspicious character, Creon, at that moment in the play he is, right? Yeah. Because he sees threats to his authority. And it's, you know, leadership and power are often confused. They're often taken as synonymous. And that's a good leader doesn't have to have all the power and lord it over everybody. And a truly powerful person does not have to be the leader either. So they're not as integrated. Creon makes the mistake of binding those two concepts together, and he and he loses it. It, it destroys him, right? It destroys everybody around him. So I thought that was kind of very modern, the way that that messenger speech worked, because corruption is such a big, big talking point, like in the modern political discourse, right? People mm -hmm. are talking about the effect of money and everything, right? Who bought you off, and who paid you to say this, and what you know? That's the yeah. way, That's what Creon was thinking. So I, I did like that. And then they pushed him into the chorus, which was great. He didn't leave the stage very often. They used yeah. it. No? Yeah. Um, Antigone also connects herself with Niobe and the myth of Niobe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In this play, yeah. um, which is an interesting connection. Yeah. Um, so. Niobe. Not, yeah, that's what I said, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, you, you had a quizzical look for a second. Yeah. I thought you forgot. Um, yeah. So the myth of Niobe, um, she has 40 children or something like that? I don't, I don't know. think it's that many. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Nine sons and daughters. Oh, no, I don't know. She she boasts about her children and yeah. how they're oh, better than the, than the children of well, Leto. Yep. And so Artemis and Apollo, who are the children of Leto, because yeah. Leto only has two and she Niobe has small. all of these however many, yeah. um, they slaughter all of all of her children. They yep. send the arrows, which... Kill her. Um, which, well, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah, which kill all the children. Right. And then Niobe is turned to stone on the mountainside. Transformed. Yeah. And Antigone argues, or is saying, interprets that mm -hmm. as her cry... She hasn't been silenced. Her rather, her cry it will go on forever yeah. because she is there, the weeping in mountain. stone, yeah, right, and weeping for her for her yeah. children, forever. So her cry. Yeah. And Antigone sees that if she dies, she 
We'll Same have thing the we'll same have thing. Her. She yeah. becomes this martyr. And lo and yeah. behold, we're still talking about Yeah, yeah. It'll immortalize her position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting take on it, for sure. You know, because, yeah, Niobe is this sad and pathetic character, right? An example of of, of, of a mortal who has, has uh, managed to, you know, raise the ire of the gods to the point of annihilating her own family, right? Her own children. Her point of, her point of honor whew, erased, right? And then poor Niobe, right? That's just what people say, like, you know, Homeric examples of don't cross the gods, look what happened to Niobe, and then we move on, right? Yeah. But she takes it one step further and, and translates it into a message, makes it into what do we call those, like, a, like, a, like an allegory, right? Yeah. For, you know, her position in the, in the, in the play as being the, um, the one who is, um, you know, the play has a line where it says you have a, uh, have a warm heart for cold things, the dead body, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're like, eh. you know, she's like, I will be the champion for the Oikos. I will be a champion for the burial rites of my brother. I will blah, blah, blah. But she never refers to him as her brother either. You know what's that? She always calls him my, my mother's son. Well, and that's something she else. Puts that she puts the relationship in a very strange box. But the interesting thing there, too, that she also brings out yeah. is that... I think they were lovers. <laughs> well, given that family, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, she points out that's that... That's just my monkey wrench moment. If apparently this is a child... Yeah. And, and this is really hard. Like, this is really harsh. And it's almost like a... Like people are like subs, you know, you can substitute them like puzzle pieces or widgets or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she says if parents lose a child, they can have another child. Right. Um, if yeah. you lose your parents, you kind of expect it because they're older and they're supposed to die. Right. And if a mother loses a child, she can. That's just what I said. Oh, yeah, right. parents, yeah. right? Like mother have another and father. child. Yeah, yeah, can have another child. But when you lose a sibling, if your parents are already gone. Yeah. You can never have another sibling. I can never have another brother, is what she yeah. says. Yeah. He will always be my brother. I can never have another brother. And then all the other connections, right, that are afforded to her as a woman in this society, right, all the other roles that are heaped upon her, right, upon her sex, as a woman, not she's a woman, but as a mother, right, as a wife, Right? And she mourns. As, she right? says, I won't ever have children. Right. And, she, and she mourns that yeah. because she's going to die, so she will exactly. not have children. But she even intimates, she says that you can always have another baby. Yeah. Right? So all those other things, can they can be redressed somehow, except for the connection in this moment with her brother. I can never have another brother. Yeah. Because Jocasta's dead. That's the mother. Yeah. That's Creon's sister. Right? Yeah. So the whole thing... Like this is part of the idea. Like it's it's easier to just make like almost forget about the the weird uh, the weird sort of family arrangement of Oedipus because his connection Oedipus with his mother wife makes their children their their roles uh, problematic as far as definitions are concerned yeah. because they're simultaneously both children but also siblings. Because, yeah. right, it's a sister, right? So that makes the whole, it problematizes the whole relationship. Like, there's nothing easy about what Antigone is. You look at her and say, well, she's Oedipus's daughter. Well, yeah, but he married his sister. So what does that make yeah. her really make her, right? It, it makes her something different, right? So in, in that environment, it's no wonder that this character, Antigone, clings so hardly to these rigid definitions because 
she herself is disambiguous, right? Yeah. So she's like, when it's brother, that's everything for her because she's not of any of those things, right? So yeah, I, I just I think it's it's a, it's fascinating when you when you look at look at it, and it's one of the reasons why it's too that Antigone can kind of get away with being the mouthpiece for this play, because. To be honest, it's a play written by men for an audience of men. And, and, and very easy just to, to push it away and say it's not valid for the Me Too movement. It's not about feminism. It's not about the conflict of gender. It's not about any of that. It's, a, it's about it's a message for Athenian men is what it is, right? And, and so what Sophocles does is comes along and happens to use Antigone. They say, well, how does he get away with it, right? Well, it's, it's a man is what it is, right? We put a woman's mask on it, but that's what it, that's what it is. And he's a way that he can get away with it because of the kind of association that I was just sort of talking about. She's not really defined in a in an easy way, you know, as being a daughter or or, or a sister or or you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's it allows you to work it in a way that you know we don't see until we get the more veristic portrayals of women in Euripides. We got more time, but with Sophocles, it's different. One of the interesting things that I learned about this play in the dramaturge yeah. notes. Yeah, um, that's Dr. Ruppelt. Yes, yeah. was the um, idea that the original tale, so oh, yeah, the yeah, myth yeah. The that Sophocles is playing yeah. with, yeah. is that Creon um, is, is clearly a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing sympathetic about him at all. Yeah. But he denies burial not just to one person, but right. to the entire side of the army to everyone and then the athenians come in and with their army and they set things right and they make sure they take care of creon and they make sure that so it's a heroic tale for the athenians which adds a whole Mm -hmm. other layer of complexity and analysis to what he is doing and he's writing this um about 10 years before the Peloponnesian war right so yeah and athens yeah, and Athens, in, this is in the, in the wake of the Persian conflict as well, yeah. has already found yeah. themselves in this preeminent position of, of, of Athenian, uh, you know, a power, prestige on the verge of empire, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's looking to them for help, and wow, look how great we are. And Athenian exceptionalism, we're better than everybody else. Right? It's getting huge, yeah. right? And what do they do in this myth that informs the writing of this they, play? They intentionally leave Athens and go and they go to Thebes to do that, which, show up and... Which like, yeah, it's great because dead. they come, they yeah. come, and they yeah. they set things right, and yeah. they they, and then go they bring their freedom. Yeah, to, yeah. exactly, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like a lot of yeah. a lot of the rhetoric they the, export the, the morality, we, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so Sophocles has taken this play, yeah. that is this, this heroic tale for sure. the Athenians, yeah. and he's flipped it around on its head. Sure, and there's there's not really anything yeah. heroic about it because in, the, in when you use that myth as the overlay. Then who's the Athenians in the Sophoclean story? Antigone. Yeah, right? She's a woman. Exactly. Isn't that weird? Right? The ancient Greeks wouldn't like it. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. And, and The Athenians and, would not like being called women. No, they, they wouldn't. But but again, Athens, you know, it's almost like, it's kind of like you get a pass in a way because of their association with Athena in a way, right? Like yeah. it's like this sort of divine force. and. And and because she has this sort of like weird reality distortion field around her, you can't really just come right out and say, you know, oh, it doesn't disqualify what she has to say. The message is still important, right? And it makes the makes the audience kind of consider the message sometimes over the messenger, which yeah. is a big big deal in a democracy. Just because you don't like who's saying it doesn't mean you you shouldn't hear it, 
right? Or you shouldn't at least listen to it. That's it, right? And and the decisions that Athens is going to make, because they're both simultaneously on both sides of the argument. They're crayon too. Yeah. Like that's why it's in the context of yeah. where it's in. The decisions that they have to make now are a lot like those decisions that Creon makes. Do we make the right choice? Do we make? Do we? Do we modify? Do we go back? Right? Do, uh, is it too late to make that choice? Does it lead to a tragic outcome that I haven't yet con- calculated? You know, even a uh, you know a passing student of Thucydides sees these types of questions all the time. That's why it's so timely. The the democracy it's, it's, meets. Yeah, and, you know, it's and they're constantly doing it's, that. It's riding a tiger, which is exactly yeah. what Creon is doing. It's yeah. like once once you're riding the tiger, yeah. how do you get off and not get eaten? And not get eaten, yeah. Right? right. Like you just yeah. hold on to the tiger's back or, and hope the tiger exactly. doesn't like, shake you off. Right. And once we've committed to a course of action, does it demonstrate weakness or loss of leadership in a collective to change your mind? And you know, that's do a I, do very I important question. That's exactly. Look at look at the look, look at the the time frame. Well, yeah. ultimately, will be the time frame. We're going to wait what ten years? Four, yeah. to ten years. Yeah. We're going to wait ten years before the Peloponnesian War kicks off, and then very shortly thereafter, they're going to be confronted with this very same idea multiple yeah. times in that war. You know, do we kill everybody on Lesbos like Mytilene, the Mytilenean revolt, or do we? Or do you know? Wow! In the morning or yesterday, the assembly said, "Kill them all!" Right? Then we got up and went. Hold on a second. That ain't right. What are we going to do? We better get someone over there and tell them not to do that. That's the same group of people, yeah. like 12 hours later. So the, the, you have to – they're aware of it. They're going to be yeah. really made aware of it. And that's what this works so well with, with that play. And they, and they lose everything. And yeah. they do. And Creon does lose yeah. everything. But yeah. there is still a lesson in it. That's why I say yeah. it's like an allegory, right? There's still a lesson. There's still, there's still something to, to see here. So, in conclusion, in the performance, like, but yeah, in terms of the performance it, yeah. and the yeah. play itself, um, I wish it was going for another ten weeks and everybody can go and see it. And exactly. Enjoy it, but now we, it's and gone. You, well, this, I'm very pleased to report the second weekend was completely sold out. Sold out. Yeah. So the thirty people who didn't fill seats that first night, opening night. Yeah. Tisk tisk. Mm-hmm. You missed out. You got to get at it early, <sighs> folks. Get at it early um, and often. But. For those of you who did not see it and now mm-hmm. sadly cannot see this particular performance, right. um, you can certainly check out our friends at literatureandhistory.com yep. um, who have done episode 32 on antiquity. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's Doug, right, at Literature and History. Yep. And uh, Ryan Stitt over at History of Ancient Greece. His episode 51 is about Sophocles. So if you want more about the about the play and about its historical, historical context. Yeah, do visit and, our friends. And I would encourage you as well. Um, hope, hopefully, this isn't moralizing. I don't. <laughs> but um, as you think moralizing of moralizing, <laughs> demoralizing, or moralizing, <laughs> um, as you think about the play and read the play, if you do choose to to do so, mm-hmm. um, to think about power and the meaning of power and the meaning of debate and resistance um, and and resistance. Yeah, I can add to that. Yeah. Um, uh, the idea that you know. Um, there was, an, there was an idea that was floated in our talk mm-hmm. uh, after the performance. And it was in relation to this kind of notion that happens often in, in ancient Greek tragedy of, of um, uh, wish fulfillment, unrealistic wish fulfillment, right? And so we, we kind of looked at this play, and here we have a girl that resists the king, blah, 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 and all this stuff, right? We see We already talked about how it works out. But... Those voices of resistance, those people that say no, right? That's the beginning of moral of, of, of ethics, 
right? Mm -hmm. The first person to say no, that's the beginning of a proper ethical discourse, right? And that's the beginning of the debate. So even if it doesn't work out for that person or the person after them or the person after them, right? In a democratic environment, the arc of history is a long, long way, right? Those things, what seem to be impossible things for us now in a democratic discourse are not truly impossible when we consider time. We can get to those things. And to think about what happens to those voices yeah. in the context of Niobe, who's turned to stone and her, her voice is preserved yeah. in, in that way. Yeah. And so how, how we preserve or not those, those voices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Before we get going on a whole other tangent, uh -huh. um, I don't know why I'm holding this up because our readers can't see it, but I am holding this up. What is it? So Darren it's a piece of paper. and I have have created something special for our myth take listeners oh yeah and it is our version of antigone by sophocles okay it is Sounds like pretty heavy business. so apparently zines are making a comeback i don't know anything about this i missed them the first time around i, didn't I was even not know they were here the first time around it was back in the 90s oh, okay. or 80s, something like that. Okay. Where Zines. Zines. It's short for magazine. Got it. And the idea was, and this was pre-social media. Yeah. Oh, do I have to? Okay. Yeah. This was the days of pre-social media. Right. And it's like publishing yourself. Self-publishing. So Self-publishing with a photocopier. Right. And some colored pens and. Make your own little cute Yeah. Magazine. And trading and sharing them. Yeah. Oh, I got you. I remember people doing it when I was in high school. But apparently oh. it is back. It is doing the rounds again. Okay. And I did a zine workshop. Oh, really? And then I got thinking about all of the kinds of things that I could zenify. Oh, is that the I don't term? know. That's my term. We're going to coin that. Okay. Zenify. So we just, I decided that we were going to mm -hmm. zenify. Yeah, I was part of that. Um, Antigone by okay. Sophocles. And I coerced Darren into doing the drawings because his figures are absolutely adorable and I did the words and we will put a pdf of this up on the blog and on patreon um, so our supporters and listeners can download it but as a special little treat um the first oh. well it's almost done yeah. it, it will be done by the time the podcast goes out oh, I just have to ink the letters good and you, you have a to... special little treat right special treat the first Five listeners uh -huh. who go to mythtake.blog yep. and send us an email through our contact form right. that include their mailing address. Right. We'll get we one. will send them an autographed copy. Yes, we'll print, print it copy. out and fold it up. Which we will should. print it and fold it for you yeah. and send it out. Sign it and send it out to you in the mail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when they do print it out, that's the other thing you can see. Like when you, oh, say, yeah, I when you say it's a zine, you yeah. know, they don't know what that means. Yeah. And I don't even know. I mean, okay. so you got to print thing, it out, yeah. and then you got to fold it up in a certain way, yes. so that it actually is a book, becomes yes. a book. It's yeah. it's a one eight and a half by eleven page. Yeah. You print it off, Colour you actually. fold yeah. it, mm -hmm. and you make one cut mm -hmm. and fold it up. Well, and then finish folding it, mm -hmm. and then you have a, a little book. eight page booklet out of an eight and a half by eleven sheet. So, yeah. thank you for reminding me. I will post instructions on how to fold it, sure. as well as the actual PDF, along with corresponding video. We could do a video. Where would we put it? Well, we on put it blog? on the blog oh, okay. and on right. and and on and on Patreon. Got how it. to fold your zine? Got it. In a few easy steps. We yeah, we could do the one where you know it's like how to uh, <laughs> how to sign your you know exam book. Remember that one? Oh yeah. yeah, 
we never really did anything to that, no, though, did we? No. Because we didn't want to shame students. Yeah. And it's stressful enough. Anyway, so that is our little present to you. Um, we're excited to see that even though we've been off air, lots of people have still continuing to enjoy and download our episodes. Mm -hmm. And we will be back next time we have something to say. We'd like to thank our supporters. Oh, yes. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters yes, who continue constantly. to help us with our hosting fees so that we can keep our episodes all available. Mm -hmm. And I didn't print off the list, mm -hmm. um, but we will mention you in the show notes mm -hmm. um, we will also provide links to literature and history and history of ancient greek uh, yep. greece episodes which are relevant to today's topic mm -hmm. and i think that's it for today i think that's it folks all right signing off i am darren sunstrom and i am allison twitter handle is at darren sunstrom and, and mine's at ines allison but you can follow us at mythtake at mythtake podcast yes at Mythtake Podcast. Yep. And uh, the blog, um, mythtake.blog. Blog. There you go. Um, and where all good podcasts are found. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks. Good night. Bye.